Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here on a perfect summer morning in Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller here in south-east London on an equally perfect morning, but will it last? We have a man with a brain the size of a planet with us today, Richard. Indeed, we're delighted to have Ben Jones with us. Ben Jones is a an analyst at CrickViz, which is the world's leading cricket analytics provider. That is such a strange term to a lot of listeners. We might even begin by asking, what is a cricket analytics provider? But it means, uh, doesn't it, that you absorb uh, and interpret an amazing number of data about cricket and indeed perhaps about other factors in life. And out of this, with um, Nathan Lehman, who was our very first guest on this podcast, you've produced a remarkable book, a really important book called Hitting Against the Spin, How Cricket Really Works. So, um, Ben, welcome to the podcast. And um, really looking forward to exploring this book with you. Thank you for having us, guys. I mean, quite the introduction. I've done a few few different podcasts now and none have been quite so august. That was, was very enjoyable. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I should probably should, as I say, introduce myself more broadly. You kind of reference the idea that analytics can be a little bit... Uh, a little bit oblique, but I suppose fundamentally it's just about it's as as you say it's just counting things, measuring things, getting as as many data points as we can from every cricket game in the world, and using it to try and understand the game and to try and talk about the game in an interesting and hopefully creative manner. And sometimes it's all very serious and trying to sign players or talk about players and deconstruct things. And sometimes it's just you know, the, the whimsical end that we all know and love about some statistical analysis analysis in cricket that we've heard on TMS and Sky down the years, that kind of stuff. So we've got a full spectrum of, you know, from the fun to the relatively kind of, sort of substantial and important stuff. So hopefully we can do the full gamut while I'm here and, and kind of go end to end. My day job is as a political um, political writer. So the way I understand it, rather, is that you've you've done to cricket analysis what Cambridge Analytica, for instance, done to political <laughs> analysis. I'm not making a joke, actually. I'm saying you know it's it's a very serious uh, use of the sort of modern technology, uh, which enables incredibly uh, detailed study of data to reinterpret and to affect uh, political action. That's what Cambridge Analytica did, and and you do the same with cricket. Uh, analysis. That's a yeah, that's an interesting um, angle. Like I, I was laughing rather not because it's a it's funny, just because it's, it's obviously quite a grand comparison. But I, I suppose not with my own work, but you reference the fact that I wrote the book with Nathan, and there is a slight disparity between us in terms of our experience. I'm I'm starting out, and Nathan's arguably the best in the world at what he does, and I think that the comparison is probably more apt for him. I think that what some of the work that he's done with the England team over the last few years. With the white ball side, with the with the ODI side that won the World Cup, with the T Twenty side that got to the final of the World Cup, and hopefully will bring it home again later this year, I think there is a there is a reasonable comparison there because it has taken it all, taken it all apart, taken it back to first principles. How do we win these games? How do we make these players their absolute most effective? And I, th- I think yeah, there's there's maybe a there is maybe a comparison in terms of viewing the whole uh, the whole process as a kind of holistic thing. It's not just about 
coming in saying, oh, you know, Johnny, you keep getting bowled by balls on your stumps. It's about looking at the whole process and, the, you know, how, how do we get a route to victory that starts with creating a domestic tournament that creates players all the way through to bowling plans in the final at Lords against New Zealand. So I think that that's, that's probably the best way of, of placing those two things alongside each other. Is it? it's, it's the scope of it um, rather than necessarily the, <laughs> the political implications. <laughs> Oh, but it's um, Ben. I've noticed see you read English literature at Cambridge, and um, your book is is very um, literary in the sense it's full of um, literary and cultural references. But I wondered what um, drew you into becoming a cricket data analyst, as you've since become. To you know, old romantics like uh, like us, it doesn't seem like a natural preparation. Yeah, I I, I get that a lot actually because I think it is it is slightly odd hop skipping a jump across, but. When I was um, yeah, so when I was at university, I I wanted to I wanted to do creative writing. I wanted to, I wanted to be a poet, and I did a lot of poetry and wrote about it and analysed it, and that was very much my my oeuvre. But the, on the side of that, I was always writing about sport. I was always writing about cricket, and that was what I wanted to do after university. I wanted to be a cricket journalist, and so I um, worked with various magazines and, and newspapers to try and get work experience. And whilst doing that, I you know was you know scrounging around for any work that I could get in the game. And one of the companies that offered me some work was, was Critvis, the, the company that I still work for, um, who at the time were a relatively small operation and we've grown a lot in the last five years. But I worked with them during the Women's World Cup in 2017, which was a, you know, a great tournament to be involved with. It felt very alive and you know, on home soil and it was that wonderful day at Lords with everyone, you know, everyone packed into the ground and tickets out outside. Um, it was, it was, that was something quite special. But from there, it's been... I've only ever really gone deeper into the analysis side of things. I've only ever, I've never really gone back towards traditional written journalism because uh, I, I just find this so fascinating. Now, what you what is absolutely gripping about your your book and uh, the work that Nathan's done before is it does completely reinterpret cricket in a mind blowing way. I mean, the section on the on left handers is incredible uh, in the insights and the explanations of. Start cricket starts off with none, uh, and now it, and, and the sort of amazing journey it's taken to where they're now almost dominant. Yeah, that's uh, and you, it's only data which can really explain that. Yeah, I mean, I should uh, I should give a, a brief overview of that of that chapter just so Do, people yeah. know what we're, we're talking about. Which is the yeah, as you say, initially the the cricket world in terms of the of a traditional batting order, the guys that are in the side just to do the batting, the top seven basically weren't ever left-handed. There were no left-handers. It was very, very, very rare. And then across the uh, across the next resultant 100 years, we saw a steady increase, steady, very gentle increase. And then in the last you know, 40, 50 years, we've seen a real upsurge in it. Now, partly that's due to, that's due to a wide, wide variety of factors, but the one that we focused on in the book was two main things, which is the idea that they have an advantage against pace bowling. Left-handers have an advantage against fast bowlers. But also it's related to a, an increase in the standard of umpiring and they, they are related as well. For the first 30 overs of any test match innings or first class innings, a left-handed batsman has a substantial advantage over a right-hander. And that is because the vast majority of those overs are bowled by right-arm seamers from over the wicket. Now, we all know, just instinctively as cricket fans, that that makes it quite difficult from that angle to get an LBW decision going your way. That's not easy because about half of deliveries are bowler bowls from that angle that hit the stumps are pitching outside leg. So immediately, you can't get the ball. You can't get a dismissal in that manner. 
So a left-hander is almost straight away taken away that opportunity to be dismissed. So they have they have an advantage. Now, in the in the seventies, in the sixties and seventies, when umpiring was relatively professional, but still home umpires, it was still a degree of kind of skullduggery. You know, Javed me and Dad not being given out on home soil, all of those kind of things. And we kind of dig into the the um, the issues with that particular example in the book. I hope, but there was always an understanding that umpiring was an imperfect art. It wasn't It wasn't precise. Now, as umpiring improves post-Imran Khan and all the, all the debacle about wanting to be proved best, prove themselves on a level playing field against the best in the world, Imran Khan being instrumental in, 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 in bringing in uh, neutral umpires. I think it was for a series against the West Indies, mm. off the top of my head. You would probably know, Peter. Um, as we see that improvement and move towards neutral umpires we see left-handers results improve and their proliferation in the game improve and that's because we're seeing them be more accurate in terms of not giving lbw decisions in those in those first 30 overs and throughout the game so that advantage that they always had about the ball pitching outside leg stump they were never really given it it was just kind of there and they were, it was ignored the quality of the umpiring wasn't strong enough to allow them that advantage on the field we then see that continue through the 90s and then into the 2000s and then in 2010 when DRS becomes uh, part of the game part of the international game across the board apart from in India we suddenly see it go up again we see it increase again because players are now not even beholden to just quality umpires and umpires umpiring standards improving they're also in control of it themselves so if Alistair Cook knows that the ball is pitched outside leg stump the the the, uh, the advantage which he already has from his incredible personal skill is exacerbated because he has the ability to to review a decision that maybe he was given out you know first ball against Bhuvanesh Kumar in a test match and he can go no nope, I, I know I know that the angle doesn't work I'm going to review it and so we keep seeing we keep seeing that mm. that increase in left-handers and we see it most obviously and most pronouncedly in countries where there is more pace bowling i.e. Australia and England, and there are there's a counterexample in the book which I would I'd hope that people uh, kind of follow follow through to the end of the chapter because it's where the where the chapter gets its name from, which is why Indians don't bat left-handed, mm. because the flip side of it is that in countries where there is a lot of spin bold, you see the reverse, you see an underrepresentation of left-handers because the vast majority of spin is bowled by right-handed bowlers and most of them bowl off spin, so it, as a result you're turning the ball away from the left-hander, and so you see this. The, the chance for left-handers to come through and be excellent and be score the runs necessary to to get test uh, test selection is is limited because they're facing bowling which is naturally kind of more dangerous to them than it is to their right-handed colleagues. So it's that kind of um, that kind of study I think is representative of what we try to do in the book as a whole, where we we're not necessarily kind of going in with a sledgehammer and trying to bludgeon received wisdom out the door. We're just saying. Look at these. Take it back to first principles. Look at why. Why were these players not ha- not around then and are now around now? Why were they doing poorly then? Doing well now, and then trying to kind of tease it through with all the data that we that we have access to, and hopefully it yields something something kind of con- that contributes to broader cricketing discussion. I hope. No, that was absolutely. Well, I think you've certainly done that. I think yeah. a, a theme that. I pick up a lot in the book is at least the initial benefits of unorthodoxy and unfamiliar players and unfamiliar methods. I think, you know, the advantage of left-handed um, uh, players is it's just one aspect of it, but you have uh, then your study of um, Malinga and Miralitharan, and um, your book seems to be constantly challenging orthodox methods of playing. And I'm thinking of other, it makes me think of other fields where, 
you know, players have deliberately caught in unorthodoxy. There was a period in chess where where chess players uh, invented ludicrous openings and ludicrous defences. There was one called the the monkey bum defence, just simply to take the opponent out of his familiar repertoire and, and his comfort zone. I mean, I, I couldn't speak to, to the chess example as I'm, I, I know very little about it, but I think the logic from what I've read about it um, since you mentioned it before this call, um, does it does very much hold up. I think as soon as you reach the elite level of any sport, of any game, what you are primarily working with is disrupting. You're disrupting received patterns for certain players. Now, you touch on again, again the idea of left-handed batsmen was what we just spoke about then in, with the uh, Indians and Australians and, and the English and the description between pace and and, uh, and spin. But left-handed bowlers, the advantage that they have is almost entirely their unfamiliarity. It's the fact that there are fewer of them. And so the, the whirrings and the cogs that are going on inside the, the mind of a professional cricketer, in, of a batsman, um, they are... Those aren't those aren't instinctive. Those are learned. Like a batsman being able to watch the ball out of the hand, whether it's a spinner or a pace bowler, and pick up the length and pick up the bounce and see and try and receive reading the uh, which way the seam is decanted to uh, to kind of go towards uh, towards first slip and it's going to swing away, etc., etc. Those are trained. That is trained over a number of years, and as a result, youth it, it is trained primarily on right arm bowling. As soon as a left arm bowler comes in, that training is worse. It is it is it is minimal, and so the opportunity for them to to pick up on all those little cues, those little visual ticks that allow them to to play at their absolute peak, they're gone, or they're at the very least limited. And so I think that's why we see there is a, there is a discrepancy between between left handers, particularly in, in forms of the game where. Um, Reaction time is, is is quicker and it's more important. If the touch is T Twenty cricket or the hundred uh, coming up and T Ten cricket, the shorter the format, the more advantage left-handers get, and it's because of the importance of reaction time. Um, and I think that we, as you say, we we spoke about it with regard to to Malinga and Murali, but I also think there's an example. There's, there's there's examples all the way through the game of guys who are on the outskirts of orthodoxy and traditional technique have a, a preponderance to do well I mean the, you know from the best batsman that I've ever seen play test cricket is Steve Smith and no one else bats like him now everyone else is trying to bat like him but it changes it the, the kind of the game is changing because of them but actually as an isolated incident he's essentially a player who's removed the LBW mode of dismissal from his game because he is so unorthodox and I think that there's a there's a there's a discussion in there about the idea of the way that the reverse sweep has changed mm. and its interaction with the game has changed because initially it was so unorthodox that you had a significant advantage and then it changed as teams become more more used to it. You lose that advantage and it becomes orthodox. It becomes part of the received wisdom of the game and the received uh, kind of method of playing. So I think that what we're coming back to here is, is just a fundamental idea that elite athletes are, are a different beast. They are a different thing. You can't necessarily, you can get quite a long way by just being very good and very orthodox. But if you have limited resources, either because you're a poor cricketing country or you're not necessarily that gifted a player in any field and probably not even sport, the way that you can gain an advantage is by being unorthodox, is by adopting an extreme method, whether that's uh, extremely defensive or extremely attacking or however you choose to, to kind of slice it. I think there's quite a lot there. Um, and hopefully that offers a bit of wisdom, for not just not just for the cricket field, maybe for life. I don't know, I don't want to be too bumpers, but you know what I mean. Well, I'm glad you mentioned sort of average players or less than brilliant players because, you know, the conventional wisdom is usually right for them, isn't it? I mean, it's 
based on kind of years of observation, even if it's not based on precise data collection. And this, you have this very um, uh, striking image, which I'll perhaps ask you to explain, the image of the tethered cat. You know, if, if a tethered cat, if something familiar seems to work, I mean, um, people don't change it, even if it, players have acquire superstitions, don't they? You know, which pad they put on first, which can't make, make any difference to performance, but they're very important to them. And if they work... They don't change it. Cricket history is littered with you know, with superstitions, isn't it? People taping. The, was it Jack Russell used to tape his bat to the ceiling or something like that? There are all these kind of pre-innings rituals. People love to repeat what has worked in the past. Um, the tethered cat actually is one of one of Nathan's favourite images because he's very into his Buddhist philosophy. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a broad man. He knows, you know, he knows a lot of things about a lot of things. But the tethered cat essentially refers to the idea that um, there were a group of monks who were praying every night and they were eating, they were they were conducting this particular um serv- sermon or service and they were they were going through this particular ritual and a cat broke in essentially and cat and a cat broke in and disrupted them now to, to stop it disrupting it they tied it now after a while the cat became part of the furniture and they just and it was there every day and they just got on with it now then the cat died and they replaced it with another cat because it had already become part of the logic of the evening ritual that a cat had to be there in order for it to be uh, to be legitimate. So it, it had no bearing on it. It was just that through luck and circumstance, this was the way that things played out. Now, the reason we use that analogy, I think, is because cricket is very beholden to what whatever it's done before is how it's going to do it in the future. And it, it bears particular relation to the chapter where we're talking about bowling first and batting first after you've won the toss. Now, for many years, and we'll, I'll discuss it in the era of the... Um, the kind of the first two eras of test cricket really which were uncovered pitches and then the about 40 50 years afterwards in the era of uncovered pitches batting first winning the toss and batting first was the route to victory that was the way that you you got the best of conditions with the bat and you got the best of conditions with the ball so as a result there was no real kind of issue with uh, with just tossing tossing winning and batting first now once pitches stop being uncovered that advantage disappears essentially there's still a marginal advantage but it's very minimal and yet captains keep batting first when they win the toss. They keep doing what they've always done because they were trained to be to, to know that this was the route to victory, despite the fact that for 30, 40, 50 years, they weren't seeing the pattern in front of them that was laid out saying that actually, you know, there are a lot of venues in the world where it is very much not the best route to victory. It is very much the best route to victory is to bowl first. But captains often get laughed at for going against received wisdom, the classic example being Nasser at Brisbane. If Nasser had batted first, been rolled for 150, and then Hayden and Langer and Ponting go and make 600 declared, then everyone just goes, yeah, Australia are a very, very good cricket team. Guess what? They're going to beat you. But if you bowl first and you try to you try to get push back, you try a different route, you are opening yourselves up to criticism that you don't get when you stick with orthodoxy. And I suppose, yeah, it comes back to that that principle of going with the, the, the received orthodoxy is the conservative route for a reason. It's very interesting. It's not just cricket, is it? As a going back to politics again, mm. um, if you go back to the greatest historical tragedy of modern times, which is the invasion of Iraq, the uh, the winners, the political winners, were the people who urged the invasion. And the, there's never been any. Uh, if you look at you know Cat David Cameron supported it, Ian Duncan Smith. Tony Blair, there's been no punishment to the people who, who, who led the invasion, but those who opposed the invasion, Corbyn and so on, they continued to be mercilessly ridiculed and attacked. 
and that, and that's because the rule of politics is it's much better to be wrong with the crowd than right. You'll never be forgiven for getting things right. And it's quite similar to that decision, you know, that the, bat, the, bat, the batting captain has always got to bat first, even if it's the wrong decision, because the consensus opinion will always applaud that and condemn unorthodoxy. I think that's a really good example, actually. It's obviously a disparity in the, in the, in the importance of it, but I think that the, the logic there and the wisdom is, is very much the same. It's that idea of if you go against the crowd, you are opening yourself up to criticism, but it's better to be with the crowd wrong than it is to be against the crowd right i think is probably the the way we'd give it i mean the, the conversation to bring it to bring it specifically back to that that example of nasser at brisbane um the the rule of the crowd is so great that even though in the book we basically try our best to empirically prove that england were right to to do that um i worked with nasser a little bit during um on sky test matches and um, I've told him many times that he was right to bowl at Brisbane and he will have none of it because the, the, he has been told so mercilessly for <laughs> 20 years that he was wrong to, it's that really he, he, is, he is going to refuse, even though I'm giving him this olive branch and saying, nah, here you go. This is, your, this is your way out of this one. He refuses to take it. So that's the power of the crowd, I think. I just want to, um, I want to just pick up on Iraq because I, Peter and I don't have the same view of Jeremy Corbyn uh, for a start. I don't think Jeremy Corbyn's been vilified for opposing the Iraq war. I think he's been vilified for other reasons. I don't think that, um, and I think, I think Iraq, the Iraq war and the experience of the Iraq war has sort of changed the conventional wisdom a little bit. I mean, I don't think we're going to have another, I don't think this country will get involved in, in another Iraq war, and it, or certainly not in quite the same way, but the Iraq war turned out to be unpopular, and it's now influenced the conventional, what's now the conventional political wisdom. Um, but I really wanted to get on to a, what I think is a basic question, um, which arises from your book, I call it the $64,000 question. Um, obviously, it's not enough just to collect data uh, about anything, about cricket or about any other phenomenon. You need the imagination to realise what they're telling you, don't you? Um, there have been plenty of examples of data being used to buttress fundamentally bad ideas, like as they were in one example that occurs to me is medieval astronomy. They, there are plenty of observations of planets and stars, but they all produce the same, they're all supported the same wrong conclusion, the same preconception that um, everything went round the earth. And I, just, and I wondered how you and Nathan have um, sort of countered, have countered this. How have you spotted when the data tell you that something different is happening in cricket and this is why? Well, it's funny, as you, as you mentioned that, I was just thinking of a, there's quite a good example to bring it into a sporting context. I think it was in the, in the 1950s or 60s, there was an English football coach or football analyst who was very keen to do some essentially early statistical analysis of um, of the game to try and kind of uncover some hidden truths. And one thing that he 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 identified was, I, th- I think I'm, I'm parroting Jonathan Wilson, but uh, I, I think I think the gist of it is that he identified that the shots which the shots on goal which came from the fewest passes prior to it. So essentially, as soon as you got the ball, the smaller the number of passes before having a shot, the more likely the shot went in. So he basically interpreted, he took that, that bit of data, that, 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 that little finding, and he said, well, that means that the best way to win football matches, the best way to score goals, is to, as soon as we get the ball, to try and have a shot as soon as possible. Now, 
he's reverse engineered it wrong there because what it actually showed you or subsequent studies have probably suggested it showed was that you the best chance you had of scoring was when you won the ball back in the penalty box of the opposition or around the penalty box of the opposition and thus you were already closer thus you needed fewer sh- passes in order to come get into a shooting position so you could take that fundamental bit of bit of wisdom that that he found and he uncovered and he did the the research in order to find it and you can interpret it in two different ways and i think that that is the fundamental challenge of of being a data analyst in the, in sport is as you as you say trying not to use the numbers to back up poor bits of, of logic i think that one of the things that nathan china i don't want to put words in his mouth but i think one of the the fundamental bits of wisdom or founding bits of wisdom that he found when doing the the work on england's world cup planning was that england's conservative strategy prior to the 2015 world cup was the wrong way to go it was too it was, it was too conservative the numbers said be aggressive the numbers said be attacking now they, they they told all the players that they said please go about this please try and attack more and the players either weren't able to or weren't willing to for whatever reason to you know tell us all this time in sport now after the world cup they have they've got this new group of players in it's jason roy it's alex hales it's ben stokes it's james taylor and they say go and play go and play aggressive cricket and they do but what it comes up against is the idea that the numbers generally say attacking is better, being aggressive is better. And that's across all sports. Most sports say attack is better than defence. It's better to back yourself on the front foot and to be aggressive. But it's about pressure and risk and how people wilt in those situations when you ask them to perform those tasks. Now, I think what, what we're trying to get at with, in my, in my question, answer to your question is that doesn't come down to necessarily plotting out a completely flaw- flawless route to victory or, or defeat. It's about the people involved. It's about the actual players on the pitch. So you can buttress received wisdom as much as you like, or you can misinterpret the numbers. But a lot of that is because the people involved are hugely variable individuals. You've got, you could have a player who one day is able to execute this particular game plan and on another day they aren't. Can you explain something which you really, really hit me listening to you there? So England really worked out what was wrong with their one-day game. They used statistics to do it, and they implemented a strategy as a result, and we won the World Cup. So you, you, you can there's a demonstrable change and, and a triumph. That's the one-day game. Why can't? Why are we exa- so, so utterly useless at doing the same in the in the proper form of cricket in the five-day game of cricket? <laughs> where, why is statistics? One would say watching the perform- recent performances for a long time of the English team so poor at helping the English Test match players. Well, I think what that speaks to is the fact that it wasn't just a case of Nathan waltzing in and saying, this is the way that you play cricket. This is how we need to do it. Cool. We've sorted that now, lads. That's done. We've just got to do it for four years and win the World Cup. It's about having the players to do so. We, so we talk, in the, we talk in the book about the idea that part of the reason why England were able to execute this, um, this strategy and play in this, in this eye-catching way was because the crop of players who were of age and of the right, the right age, 23 to 29, um, coming into this had been grown up playing essentially a shorter form of one-day cricket. They'd grown up playing the old 40-over league, the Pro 40. Um, And as a result, they were more used to hitting out from the start. They were used to, they'd taken out those kind of flabby middle overs and you have to be a bit more pedal to the metal all the way through. So it's not just a case of coming in and saying, the numbers say we need to be more aggressive. It's about having the players to do so. So I think the numbers in test cricket, I, I haven't done a huge amount of broader analysis of test cricket stylistically, um, Nathan will have when he obviously was working with the England team. But 
I think a large amount of it is about being solidly defensive at the top of the order and having very good new ball bowlers. Now, England have got very new good new ball bowlers and that's why they have been very effective in home conditions for a generation. As much as we'd like to decry how bad this current England side are at Test cricket, this is the first time they've lost in seven years. It's the second time they've lost in a decade at home. They don't they don't lose very many test matches at home because of those new ball bowlers. Now, what we haven't had is the top order batsman. And that might be because whereas the list A cricket that England played prepared that generation of, of ODI cricketers to play in a particular way, the county championship in its current format doesn't do that. It doesn't create those players. There's another reason which your book doesn't deal with, and I think, and because the data doesn't enable us to do it, if you you have a brilliant captain, probably you know probably one of the best captains of all time in the ODI game, Morgan, who has the charisma, the leadership, the ability to stand up against the uh, cricket establishment, and say, "I'm not going to have him. I'm going to have him." In the Test match arena, we have had a sort of painting by numbers system of a, of, of appointing an English captain. You know, who's the bright young, up and rising? Batsman, Atherton, Strauss, Vaughan. And now you've got somebody who's not up to it. His batting average has collapsed. You've, you've, he's not half the batsman he was, and he's got no captaincy ability. You can tell that. And no ability to stand up against the uh, the establishment. And uh, you and also, you, you can't... And the captaincy is about... Uh, there's an art of captaincy, as Morgan shows you. This new British-English system, you know, cuts out the possibility of all the great captains of the past, uh, Brearley, Illingworth, who, Collingwood ought to have been England captain. And so it's, you can't... What you don't do and can't do, it's not really a criticism, is measure captaincy, can you? No, I don't think you can measure it. Um, and as a result, there's a tendency with with um, with our analysis that 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 which you can't measure you you disregard and that is probably wrong. I think there is clearly an importance to captaincy, whether it comes down to behind the scenes stuff off the field of being able to, as you say, maybe deal with administrative difficulties, um, maybe pushing back on or maybe maybe the, a good example with Joe Root would have been pushing back on rest and rotation um, or pushing back on players coming back from the IPL late, all that kind of stuff. Or it can be the importance of making correct fielding decisions on the on the pitch itself. Now, I think one a lot of the stuff when we've been doing our interviews with regards to the book has spoken has been talking about uh, Nathan's um, signing system that he used during the South Africa T Twenty series, where he was essentially recommending to to, to Morgan on the field uh, a strategy for the next mm. few overs um, by using the sign by using these signs that kind of said like D three or F nine, um, and so I think what captaincy. That element of captaincy, I think, is probably closer to being quantified than the former. So the idea of looking through the numbers to try and establish who is the most tactically intelligent captain, particularly in white ball cricket, where things are a little bit more measurable. I don't think we're that far away from some kind of captaincy metric that says, you know, this wasn't the optimal thing to do at this time. It will inevitably be imperfect because it's taking away a a certain degree of, of human quality there of like this guy wouldn't have been the right uh, the right choice to bowl but he was down because he'd had a bad day the previous day and we needed to get him into action or some of those kind of things but I think you're right that the idea that um the, the off the off-field management and that kind of thing it, it, it is hard to quantify that as a as a quality it is hard to to establish who is good and who is bad and maybe that's maybe that's why the the, the rather kind of 
I, I, I don't know, how you, I can't remember how you quite how you described it, but basically the, the straightforward manner of who, who is 25 and backed in the top four, you know, they take the captain's armband. Maybe that's why it's it's, it's progressed as it has, because there's no obvious uh, way of measuring, you know, this guy is actually a really good captain, get him in there. We I think we spoke um, prior to the podcast about the idea of whether or not uh, Owen Morgan should be uh, captaining the actual England test side. Uh, and I, I I rather push back on it because I do think that it, fundamentally test cricket is a game about who's got the best 11 players and Morgan is certainly not one of those. But I do understand that I did not live through uh, the Brearley era. And so I, I, I haven't seen that that strategy in action. It's just, uh, I think there is a, a history of captains who brought, often brought back out of a period of exile like Illingworth, Close, Brearley, who turn out, because they're old, in their late 30s, early 40s, and have thought and known about the game and can lead men and have a deep strategic understanding as opposed to a, a raw young man who's still building his career as a batsman and doesn't have any natural gifts as, of leadership. It's, it's a weird decision by the English. And what it means is, of course, that the English, and the reason the English cricket establishment do it is because they want to run the team and they don't want somebody else to. That's why there was always Illingworth or Close or really stood up to the establishment. They told them to get lost. They put faith behind certain players. Imran Khan's another example. He said, I want Abdul Qadir. I'm going to have him and I don't care what the uh, Pakistan cricket board thinks about that. He's playing for me. And you don't, Root is quite incapable of that kind of, uh, you can see he's a reflection of the machine and that's why the machine would like him. And that's why England will fail at the test level, in my view. I think it's a, it's a fair enough argument. I can I can certainly see the logic there. I um I, I I would say that a lot of the comparisons that you look around the world and you you look at the equivalent in different roles. There's very few older players who are coming back as captains. There's very few of the type that you're suggesting. So I think that maybe it maybe says more about the Misbah Al Haq is a classic case in point. The older player Misbah is a great yeah. example. That is a great. example. I mean, it's a phenomenally interesting thing that somebody with real personality and intelligence who emerges in their late 30s and turned Pakistan from being a second-level team to a best in the world. But the model we have now completely eliminates that possibility. Yes, captaincy, therefore, seems to be something then that analytics, where analytics doesn't tell the full story. But it seems to me you've had quite a lot of criticism from romantics, which, um, and cricket is a great attractor of romantics, that um, analytics never captures the full individuality and diversity of the game, uh, the differences between individual players and the way the game changes from moment to moment. And you've got a very illuminating description of uh, comparison of two bowlers, Kumble and Warren, both nominally leg spinners, but... Um, very different types of bowlers. Can analytics tell you how illuminate how Kumble is different from Warren? And if you're buying one or the other um, for a franchise, which one should you go for? Well, it's interesting that you've chosen to frame it on an economic line, because I think that's what our people often assume analysis is, is always coming from it's always coming from a we're creating a marketplace of players we're creating a a hierarchy of this player is empirically better than this player and that it as a result just without 
yeah, it, it can't it can't avoid it unavoidably smoothens the game. It flattens things out, and it just says you are a seven point three out of ten player. Now, what I, I what I would say is that um, you know, I make I'm <laughs> I make a living primarily not out of analyzing for teams, but but writing about the game. And if I if my writing about the game was as, pl- as straightforward and dull as saying you know this guy's better than this guy, I I wouldn't I don't think I'd do very well. I think the the whole point of that Cumble and and Wong comparison, I I hope, is that it, it it illustrates through using the ball tracking data how you can break down great players. And you're you're not trying to to smoothen and flatten them into being a quality or a, a series of, of tick boxes. You're exaggerating the differences between them. You're exaggerating what makes them specific and, and brilliant. With Cumberley, it's that incredibly high release and how quick he is, and he doesn't spin the ball very much. You can see that through the actual data points involved. And with Warren, you can see how it's the amount of drift that he gets. It's this incredible degree of movement through the air and then again off the pitch. And it's slower and it's more teasing. Now, we all can see that, but being able to actually put a number onto it doesn't make it any more or less romantic, but it allows us to talk about it in a particular direction. One thing I would also say is that in terms of trying to... uh, People being worried about the romanticising or the de-romanticising of the game, I think the, a really good example is is leg spinners in T20 cricket to kind of jump off Cumbley and Warren there is that ana- it is analysis and data analysis which has shown that leg spinners are who I think we can all agree that leg spinners are about as much fun as it gets in in, in cricket they're you know mm. they're the, they're the most in- inherently watchable art form in the game um, and certainly from a bowling point of view now when T20 cricket started. It, they were dismissed and they didn't play. They 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 bowled so few deliveries in T Twenty cricket um, that kind of they they were essentially were absent from it. And I think that early on that played into the image of T Twenty cricket as this bland, homogenous, economic product because it, it we'd removed one of one of the key art forms from it. And as a result, it was it was flatter and duller. Um, over time, we've realised that leg spin is the greatest T20 threat and the greatest ODI threat, arguably, as well. If you change the game, the shorter the game, the better leg spin becomes, the more effective leg spin becomes. And as a result of data analysis, there is more leg spin in the game. Now, without data analysis, Adil Rashid probably doesn't play in the England T20 side or the England ODI World Cup. He probably doesn't bowl that googly to Marcus Stoinis in the semi-final, which sends everyone into raptures, which rags back and go bowls him through the gate. And everyone remembers that as one of the iconic images of the World Cup. In terms of contributing to the romantic texture of the game, I think that's exactly the kind of example we should all be pointing to. It's not about flattening it out and saying, you know, oh, I, I didn't actually think that uh, Kumar Sangakara was that good a player because uh, he only scored at this number of runs per, you know, runs per dismissal and he didn't do it on these pitches. Whatever. It's not about having an argument about with numbers. It's about trying to fill in the gaps and paint a, a more vivid picture, I think. That's what, that's what I try to do. Other people, maybe not. Maybe there are other analysts who are, are slightly more blunt with what they want to try and do with the, with the tools and they want to just reduce it to a, to a marketplace. But I, I, that's very much not my, not my intention. I don't think it's what I've done and what, with, with the book. I think we've hopefully contributed and kind of illustrated what we can do. One other thing I'd just really quickly like to say as well, just as it's kind of jumped to, jumped to mind really, is in the chapter where we talk about Legspin, that the Cumbley and Warren chapter, there's a, a graphic in there which illustrates 
the essentially where a leg spin what a leg spin average is depending on where they pitch the ball in a, in a test match in a, in a game of like a full five day test match post 2006 so w- when we've got ball tracking data and you can see it down in this down, broken down into little boxes and it basically shows that a good length delivery from a leg spinner is their obviously their best a good length delivery on a good line is their best delivery now you can look at that exact chart for all bowlers all bowlers across test cricket all different kinds of right arm seamers left arm seamers off spinners whatever the good length delivery on a good line from a leg spinner is the best delivery in the game in test cricket. It's the lowest averaging delivery in the game. However, according to with data analysis, we can also show that it is the rarest delivery in the game. So it is the unattainable kind of golden thing with the, at the end of the tunnel. It is the perfect delivery, but it's also the rarest delivery. And I don't know about you, but if that's not romantic, then I don't know what is. <laughs> that's a brilliant defence of what you do, by the it's way. Very, I, I was, I was very purring as, listen, as listening to you. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I, I care about it. I care about it. Very reassuring to um, romantics and cricket, which are a very large part of the audience. I incidentally had to... <laughs> I used to be a leg spin bowler, but I was forced to give it up in the sort of midpoint of a, an undistinguished career because my, my team actually mutinied, um, refused to feel to it uh, any longer because uh, they kept having to retrieve it. So um, I don't think that's something you can factor into data analysis. Um, the fear of teammates. <laughs> yes, yes. But um, another objection that I often hear to use of data analysis in cricket is that it makes too many assumptions about causation. You know, it says, if you do X, Y, and Z, result A, B, and C will flow from it. Um, Certainly at the level I play cricket in, most events in cricket happen pretty randomly. They happen because, you know, one particular particular player may be spectacularly inept, uh, and one particular player may be suddenly uh, show a great level of skill, uh, and the two things may coincide. And I just wonder how is there a risk that data analysis makes the game appear to be more predictable and less random than it really is? And I think that's a I think that's a fair a fair point. And I, th- I think to to use your example, I think as you as the standard of the game increases, so as we move from from village cricket to club cricket to minor counties to counties to international, as you go up that pyramid, the standard improves and as a result i think the level of randomness decreases i think we all the one of the the any the great wisdoms about that i think we've seen and that analysis has proved i think is that there is very little difference in talent between a lot of the top players the, once you get to that point it's there's a lot of mental differences but in terms of the actual physical abilities these guys are these guys and girls are all very much on the same level and there might still be a, a top one percent but ultimately the margins are very fine and thus the importance of analysis comes through um one thing which we talk about a lot in terms of, as you say, there are any great number of things that can be done to win a game and it's important not to just kind of go, oh yeah, that that's the thing that they that they did and that's where the analytical point comes through. There's a thing in the book we talk about called the um, the blackboard of the obvious. Now that's Nathan's because I grew up on whiteboards, not blackboards. <laughs> um, but he basically goes through, we, we talk about it, which is that if you want to win a game of cricket, there are about 30 or 40 different things which you, we can all immediately just scribble down and say, yeah, that'll help you win a game. So it's take your catches. Uh, don't bowl wides. Don't bowl no balls. Don't get out. Don't lose early wickets. Um, all of these things, very straightforward points that we all know are are important to, in order to win games. Hit boundaries. Hit sixes, ideally. That It's all, all these things we all know. They will help you win any game. What analysis I hope tries to do is pick out what is the most what are the most influential 
points to actually focus on what are the where are the areas where you can make the greatest gains by focusing your attentions on it now prior to the world cup um prior to the 2015 world cup or in the aftermath of it rather um nathan did some analysis about essentially how do you win a world cup what are the most important contributing factors to winning an odi world cup now obviously it's bat bowl field well do all the three primary disciplines well but they found that it was disproportionately important to be a good batting side than a good bowling side. Now, I think a lot of people push back on that idea because of the idea of, you know, batsmen when you gains, bowlers when you tournaments. That's, the, that's the, the phrase. That's why everyone goes back to. But actually, the data didn't suggest that. It suggested that it was more important to have this group of batsmen. So England's plan for the next six, seven years was going to be to build a destructive, stable, aggressive batting lineup. And the bowling lineup changed all the time. It was Jake Ball in 2016, and then all of a sudden it was different. It was different guys. It was Chris Jordan. It was David Willey. It was it was all all different guys because they realised that whilst that obviously did matter a lot, it wasn't the most important factor. I think what that speaks to is the fact that it's the analytics. Yes, it can jump on the back of success and maybe say, ah, yeah, of course, the reason that uh, England won in in 2019 was because of this, this, and this. I think the advantage that we've got in terms of trying to make the argument that it can be predicted is that all of the work that Nathan did was prior to the victory. We have those blueprints. We have those those files from four years prior. We're not just jumping on the back and saying, oh, Nathan was also there, and he happens to have uh, retrospectively applied all of our logic. He was instrumental in the applying of the logic in 2015. Now, that's only one example. That's not, you know, that's not, not the case for everyone. And there will be examples of people riding the coattails of success elsewhere, it's the old idea of success having many fathers, isn't it? It's the idea that people will ride coattails. They will try and claim credit. But what I think we try to do in the book is, is make it obvious that there, there are underlying logics to winning games and to, to winning games of cricket that can be predicted well in advance. It's not just a case of retrospectively applying fairly plebeian standard ideas. It's very interesting. So you can show how analysis won or helped win the 2019 World Cup. Takes us back to that very interesting question. Do, do analytics not work in test matches? Or are they irrelevant to test matches? I think it is less relevant in test cricket than in white ball cricket. And that's for any number of different reasons. It's, it's the fact there's almost this invasion sport element of white ball cricket because it's, it's reduced to 1v1. It's reduced to a, a more manageable kind of singular entity. It's, it's smaller. It's, le- it's less sprawling. There's less opportunity for randomness or there's less opportunity for unpredictable things. Now, in a test match... Just because it's not a case of, of plotting out your bowling changes and, you know, David Willey bowls five in the power play, Chris Wilkes bowls five in the power play, da, da, da. just because it's not as structured as that, it doesn't remove, I don't think, the, the influence that analytics can have. Now, it, going into the 2019 Ashes series in England, Kunal Manik, the, uh, the Nottinghamshire analyst, did some work with Stuart Broad about how Stuart Broad was a much better bowler when batsmen were leaving him less. Now, it might sound straightforward, like a simple bit of bit of, bit of logic, but basically, when Broad bowls at the stumps, he is a better bowler. Now, we all probably could have told him that, but Kunal was able to sit down with Stuart and say, this is, this is the, these are your numbers when you do this, these are your numbers when you do that. And Broad took that on board and was like, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going around the wicket even more and I'm going to bowl at the stumps. And David Warner averages five across the 2019 Ashes series. And I think that that kind of minute detail it's not necessarily about having a grand plan but it's about going in and saying okay this is a bowling plan to the to this batsman it's about being able to go to virat kohli saying you or say so this um this summer virat kohli averages i think uh 30 against in swing and 50 against away swing all of this kind of stuff so jimmy just so you know you're more likely to get 
Coley with your sucker ball coming in than going away. All this kind of stuff. It's 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 very minute individual details rather than going in and saying things like being attacking is better or we need to score 300 or we need to do this. I think it comes down to planning rather than um rather than a kind of philosophy. But I do think I do think the fundamental idea there is right that it is less relevant and I think that's that's fine and it will change in in the coming years. I think in 20 years it will be more relevant than it is now. Oh, there are certain countries where data analytics is more favoured and where it seems to be more successful than others? I think in an international context, I think England are probably at, at the peak. I think that they have, that the work that Nathan and Giles um, have done over the last few years is, is pioneering. And I think in terms of the international side, I think that they're where it's at. But domestically, I think there is a lot more going on in, in certain T20 leagues than there are in others. I think that the IPL... And the Pakistan Super League are both extremely hot on their numbers. Um, Nathan works as the uh, the data data analyst or the strategic analyst um, at Multan Sultans a couple of years ago, and they were extraordinarily data driven. They were incredibly data driven, and it was a point of pride for the league that they were taking on the mantle of uh, Islamabad United had pr- had been extremely uh, data driven primary to that, and they played this beautiful brand of cricket, incredibly aggressive, really attacking all the way through with the bat, and then very canny with the ball. And the PSL, I think, because it's been built in the shadow of the IPL, I think has a a significant pride in its own intelligence and its own approach to, to analytics because it has to be not it can't be bigger and better it has to be different it has to be cleverer it has to be a, a different kind of t20 cricket is produced there as a result so i think it's not necessarily about being better but i think certain countries um embrace it and, sh- and don't shy away from it um that, that, i mean that it's it, australia for instance i don't think their cricketing culture is it's it's not to say that there is an analyst analysis going on in the background because there clearly is. Dean Hills of Australia is very very good at what he does, and there's there's players all over the there's guys all over the country doing really really good work. I mean, I've done I've done work in the Big Bash with the Melbourne Stars, and they are as amenable and uh, kind of they listen to the to the to the offers that I have and the interesting hopefully interesting stuff that I that I give them as much as anyone else. Um, but what I would say is that the Australian cricketing culture is less about being cerebral. It's more about that kind of relaxed, uh, straightforward, go out and just like, go and give it a whack kind of thing. Not to say it's simple, but in, in the way that English cricket loves the idea of the kind of the tinkerer and the, the mastermind behind things, the off-field thoughts, whereas I think Australia may be not quite as, as straightforwardly uh, in love with that idea. Maybe maybe that's a broad generalisation, but it's my, in my experience, that's the way I've, I've found it to be. No, I think that there's, there's some precedent for that. I mean, Australia never... Worried too much about captaincy, for example, for years or, co- or coaching years, as well. Yeah, uh, they, you know, they they picked the best team and made somebody the captain, uh, didn't they? What was it Shane Warne said the coach is the uh, the coach is the thing that drives you to the ground, <laughs> and it's like the idea that even in two thousand and three, that kind of great John Buchanan side, it was like the coach was seen as almost irrelevant by the players. That's a very it was a very different dynamic. Whereas you know English cricket has had obviously a diff- fluctuating relationship with the idea of coaches down the years and selectors and, you know, Illingworth being the head honcho in the nineties and all this kind of stuff. It's never, it's not been a through line of always trusting the coach, but it's a, diff- it's a different culture. And I think that feeds into trusting analysis because it's fundamentally on, on that, it's on that side of the fence rather. It's not a player. It's, it's a coach, just a coach with numbers. I didn't see any mention of women's cricket in the book. Has anybody done um, data analysis? Does anybody do data analysis regularly for for women's cricket? Um, and if not, why not? And if they do, does it show any differences between uh, the results uh, you get for men's cricket? 
so there is there is no mention of, of women's cricket in the book and we, we thought long and hard about it we thought that we wanted to try and include a couple of chapters on women's cricket because i think that it's it's important as a as a, as a kind of to acknowledge its place in the game is, is clearly important and it would be it, it is a, it is an oversight in many senses that we don't have it in there but what we found and what Nathan and me have spoken about in a lot of our interviews um, for the, around the book and a lot of people just chatting generally is that we couldn't have written this book full stop 10 years ago because the volume of data that we need in order to draw these big conclusions, to be confident in the assertions we're making, you need 25 years, well, you need 20 years of ball tracking data. You need all of this uh, Opta style data, shot type data. You need all of this information. And if we'd have tried to write it 10 years ago, we'd have probably got an awful lot more of it wrong. And we'd have probably made an awful lot of bold assumptions that weren't grounded in fact because the data wasn't there. Now, women's cricket in, term, in a data sense, not in a playing standard sense, but in a, in a pure sense of how much data is recorded, is I think probably about where men's cricket was in about 2006 to 2008 in terms of there are pockets of games with ball tracking data which are played on television. There are lots of games recorded with shot type data, but it's not every game. And the ball by ball data, i.e., just the kind of linear scoring across a game, that is the kind of the ground, the the kind of the basis of everything we do, um, is is only starting now to be properly comprehensive over the last few years. There are people who are doing really good work. Um, there's a guy called Hypercost on on Twitter who does fantastic work, and there's lots of data analyst, analysts um, up and down the country. I do. I've personally done work with with women's teams as well. I, I was I was the women's uh, Melbourne Renegades analyst a couple of seasons for a couple of seasons a few years ago. Um, and there is a lot you can do it, but I would say it com- again, it comes down to how do you get Elise Perry out? How do you get Sophie Devine out? How do you get Amy Satterthwaite out? It's all about individual player strengths. What it's harder to do because of the, the relative dearth of data is to draw the bigger conclusions, to talk about, you know, why are there no left-handers? Why is this? Why is this? To talk about the bigger structural stuff. And I think it would be disrespectful i think to try and pretend that we can make those assertions from a relatively small amount of data i personally would like to come back to this i'd like to write the book again in 10 years full stop because i'd like to see how the games change Mm. and how the data landscape has changed and i think that it would be we'll see a lot more about women's cricket in in the in the sequel hopefully if we ever do get around to writing it because the data landscape will have changed and will hopefully in 10 years time be where we are now with men's cricket. And that will be, that'll be fascinating because I want, I want to dig into it. I want to understand it more. There is no bit of cricket that is off limits that I don't want to understand. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. Cause I completely gripped by the whole conversation. And can you send our regards to Nathan Lehman, who was our introduction, our first ever guest. And he was so, so gripping. He was so generous of him. We didn't invite him this time along with you because we fancied he might be a bit busy. <laughs> he generally <laughs> but- is. He generally is. <laughs> but for now, it has to be goodbye for me, Richard Heller. And it's still blazing with sunshine in southeast London. And it's goodbye for me, Peter Oborn. And I'm purring at the thought that I'm off to play cricket very shortly. Thank you for having me, guys. Thank you.